0: First Peter 2, 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Our great Father, our Father, thank you for your word. that reminds us of truths like these. We ask that now your spirit would be with Daniel as he delivers your precious word to us. Be with us and empower us to hear your word anew. Please convict and sanctify us. We praise you for your glorious gospel, which makes all of this possible, and it brings glory to you. In your Son's name, Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Aletheia Church. My desire for today is to grab your heart's attention by proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. My hope, my prayer, and my pleading with God this entire week has been that this proclamation will result in the expulsive power of a new affection A new affection that will result in your mouth overflowing with praise of the excellencies of Christ and cause your lives to move in good deeds aimed at the glory of God. There is a popular story bantied about by pastors of a young student in college who proudly and boldly and boastfully proclaimed himself to be an atheist. And one day he walked into a local pastor's office and made this bold and boastful proclamation. And upon that proclamation, the pastor responds to the young man when the young man tells him, I do not believe in your God. The pastor says, well, do me a favor. Would you please go and write down for me the characteristics of this God that you do not believe in? Gladly. So the young man goes away, and a short time later, he returns with a list of all the characteristics of this God that he does not believe in. And the pastor looks at this young man, and he says, son, This is something we totally, 100% agree on, for I do not believe in this God either. The reason this this student chose to bash God and to boast that he did not exist is because, for one simple reason, his eyes were blinded to the excellencies of Jesus Christ where praise and honor and glory should have poured forth from his speech and spiritual acts of service and sacrifice proceeded from his hands and feet, there was nothing but boasting and bashing due to his unbelief. Now, on the surface, there may not seem that we as the gathered people of God this morning have much in common with the young man in this story. But if we go a bit deeper, if we scratch and get a little bit below the surface, might we find that we have more in common with this young atheist than we think? As I have pondered the words of Peter in his letter to the churches over the last week, as I have Let the word of God seep into my mind and down into my heart this week. I have asked myself and I've asked God, why is it that we don't more naturally as the people of God spontaneously praise the excellencies of Christ in our everyday settings? Why is it that in a conversation in our classroom, amongst our roommates, our neighbors, and our co-workers, while playing basketball, while playing volleyball on the campus with strangers and friends alike, do we not find praise emanating from our lips? Not in a forced or contrived manner, but because, like a dam that burst because the weight of water became too much for it, Our souls and mouths can no longer bear and no longer hold back the weight of glory that is Christ Jesus. We understand this principle through other aspects of life. You understand that when you are watching Florida football on the gridiron, and when the team is marching down the field and they finally push the ball across the goal line into the end zone, no one has to tell you to proclaim how great and glorious it was, right? What naturally happens? One person, right? Yeah, see, if that, I mean, I mean think about it. Think about if in the stadium one person went, right? That's it. I mean, 90,000 people and one person goes, yay. Right. No, that's not how it happens, right? Because when Florida scores, come on, give me. Okay, Felipe Franks, Hail Mary, Tennessee, what did you do? Oh, my God. (laughs) I cannot believe Dan Mullen agreed to come here and coach. This is a pitiful fan base. I mean, I'm an Auburn grad, and we do way better than this, okay? So, I mean, you understand that you would praise, you would shout, you would scream, and nobody has to tell you to do that. Guys who are married, you know that when you see the beauty that is your wife, no one has to tell you that says, Dang, you look good, baby. Right? I mean, it just comes out of your mouth because you are overwhelmed by the excellence of your beauty. When you are on the beach and you are watching the sun set, you have no problem proclaiming the excellency of what you see. It just naturally flows out of who you are. And so the same for us in christ jesus that that there should be something that that triggers in our mind and we should ask ourselves why is it in the same way that we do not find ourselves spontaneously praising the excellencies of jesus not just when we're quiet not just when we're singing songs in our car and nobody can hear the words but any place we go with anyone we've ever been around because even in enemy territory at the at another stadium if your team scores and you are surrounded by the enemy you still would never hold back the glory that is the touchdown produced on that field you would have no reservation you wouldn't hold it back you would let everybody around you know that your team just scored In the same way, should it not be more so for us as the followers of Jesus that we would find the praise of the excellencies of Christ coming off of our lips, that we would find ourselves desiring to do what it is He has called us to do, commanded us to do in the Scripture because we find Him more worthy, more praiseworthy than anything else in all the universe. So let me begin my message this morning by turning our eyes, ears, minds, and souls to the magnificent glory of Jesus Christ. So far in this series titled Everyday Church, where we are encouraging you to not just be the church today, but to be the church every day, in every area, in every moment of your lives, this series that is taking us through 1 Peter so far, here's what we've seen we have seen that Peter is writing to the followers of Jesus who are scattered throughout the world. The church has been dispersed. The church has been persecuted and is being spread throughout the world. And they are living as exiles in this world. But they're exiles not just because they have been displaced from their country, but they are first and foremost exiles because God has caused them to be born again. And because they have a new birthright, because they have a new citizenship, they are now primarily, first and foremost, citizens of a different country, of a new kingdom, a kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ within their hearts. This takes priority in their citizenship. They have been born again, not to a world that has been perishing and fading, but they have been born again, Peter says, to an inheritance that is undefiled, that is imperishable, that is unfading, that is being kept in heaven for them. And it is God's power who is guarding this inheritance, this faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And though they are being tried, though they are being tested, though they are experiencing persecution and finding themselves in a world where there is a country that are hostile toward them, their neighbors are hostile toward them because of their proclamation and the things that they do, they still press on because Peter tells them, this is God testing your faith, and the tested genuineness of your faith will be worth more than anything you could ever have in this life. And in light of God causing you to be born again, Peter has told us, be holy because God is holy. Set your lives to live in such a way that you are the sanctified, consecrated, separated people of God. Live like you are imitating Jesus. Be holy because God is holy. And last week, Kevin told us the way we make progress in holiness, the way Peter tells us we make progress in holiness, is by craving the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. And so today, my desire is to present to you the pure pure milk, the spiritual Word of God. Today, you are going to see Peter make four bold proclamations about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is going to tell us four things. He's going to say that Jesus is a living stone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is a stone of stumbling. Jesus is a rock of offense. In verse 4, it says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the imagery that that Peter gives us here is one that's not really familiar because you think living stone, right? You go pick up any rock anywhere like you know it is an inanimate object. It is dead. It is lifeless. There is nothing in it. But yet Peter alludes to Jesus as a living stone. This refers directly to His resurrection. And that everything is built off of His resurrection for His future glory and for our lives as well. Jesus is the resurrected living stone. And look at how glorious what He says about us. You yourselves are like living stones. You have been made like Jesus. When Paul declares... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Why? It's the resurrection. Because Christ now dwells in us. We are new creation. We have new life. We, like Christ, has a resurrection body. We will one day have a resurrection body once we experience death the way that He experienced death. But the four realities for us, the great reality that Peter reveals about us and to us and for us in this passage is that, number one, you are like living stones. And you have to understand, this is the beginning of Peter connecting the idea that we are the temple of God. Because what he says next is, you are like living stones and you are being built up as a spiritual house. This is a direct correlation Two. The temple, and you've got to understand the imagery here that people would would know exactly what Peter's talking about because he's talking about the temple. And though there were sacrifices made in the temple, the primary reason the temple existed was so that the presence of God could dwell there. God caused His presence to dwell in the temple. And now, as followers of Jesus, what do the scriptures repeat to us over and over and over that as Christ, as being in Christ, the Spirit of God now dwells. Us. the holy spirit we have as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance so peter's going somewhere you're a living stone you're being built into a spiritual house you're being built into a spiritual temple and then he continuing this temple imagery he says to be a holy priesthood to be a set-apart priesthood to be a consecrated priesthood and what did the priest do They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice for us, so now there is no sacrifice that remains for sin because that has been paid. But the imagery still remains that we as the people of God, as these living stones and this spiritual house, as this holy priesthood, we should offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through jesus christ now now to pay attention there because the only way the sacrifice is acceptable is if it's through jesus christ so if you're sitting here today and you're like well like jesus is great and i'm sure like that's a way to get to heaven but no i just kind of plan on being a good person and doing it my own way and hope my good outweighs my bad like peter has said to you and the scriptures declared to you from beginning to end that will never be an acceptable sacrifice No matter how many good things you do in this life, you can never overcome the stain of sin that is upon your soul, for you have rebelled against God, for you have turned against God and gone your own way, and so there is only one acceptable sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ. And in light of Him offering Himself as a spiritual sacrifice on our behalf, we now offer ourselves by giving spiritual sacrifices. And you may be asking okay daniel so what are some of those spiritual sacrifices and and really the list could go on and on and on forever but we think about it in in the giving of our time the giving of our talent the giving of our treasure we can do it in being a part of the service team here on sunday morning or serving kids on Sunday morning. We can do it in hospitality by hosting people in our dorm room, in our apartment, or in our homes for our gospel communities. We can do it in evangelism just when we are out and about with people proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. That can be a spiritual sacrifice, setting aside time to talk to people about Jesus. Romans says that in light of what God has done, you should offer your body as a spiritual sacrifice. So one of the questions you have to ask yourself today is, are you offering your body as a spiritual sacrifice in light of what God has done for you? If you look back at this past week, can you say, I offered my body as a spiritual sacrifice to Jesus? Can you look back over the, next, the last month, the last year, the last semester, Yes, I offered my body as a spiritual sacrifice to God because I am so overwhelmed by what He has done for me. This is what is expected to us as the redeemed children of God. This is what is expected of us as living stones who are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. If you are not yet living in such a manner and are a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, To examine your life. Paul says to examine your life. Examine your faith. Look at your life to to make sure that you are in the faith. Because the result of what Christ has done for us should result in proclaiming His excellencies and in offering acts of spiritual sacrifice for Jesus. From here, Peter takes us into his next thought and you're going to see in verses 6 through 8 Peter quote the old testament for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, in this immediate reference, Peter is quoting Isaiah 28, 16. So in order to draw out the meaning for us, we have to draw out the context of Isaiah 28 to see what it is Peter is wanting to say to us. And so in Isaiah 28, what is emphasized throughout the book of Isaiah comes To the forefront right here in Isaiah 28. That those who trust in the Lord will escape judgment. Isaiah was encouraging the people not to put their trust in foreign alliances or military strength, but only in the Lord. Those who do not trust in Him will perish, but those who put their faith in Him will triumph. The big imagery drawn out of this is Jesus being the cornerstone. I'm sure if you've been a part of church at any point in time in your life, you've heard a song about Jesus being the cornerstone. Christ being the cornerstone. But I don't know that we give a lot of thought to to what is actually being said here. For in building in Jesus' day, prior to Jesus' day, and all the way until now, We know that the very first stone that gets laid is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone must be cut and leveled in such a way that everything is then built upon the cornerstone. So if you take this building and one of its corners, on that corner, that first stone was leveled, it was put in place. And every wall that proceeded this way and this way and then built itself up depended upon that first stone being set right. All the weight of the building, all of the lines in the building are determined by that one initial cornerstone. And Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus is that cornerstone through which all things are built. And the scriptures declare that Jesus is the cornerstone through which the whole world exists. Jesus is the cornerstone through our faith, for our life. We are to build our lives on this cornerstone. We build our relationships on the foundation of this cornerstone. We build how we spend our money on the foundation of this cornerstone, how we raise our children, how we act at work. Everything in our lives is dependent upon us leaning upon and letting ourselves rest upon this cornerstone to determine how we level our lives and how we build up our lives as we live them before God and other people. And so Peter is telling us, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And for you who believes in Him, you will never be put to shame. And you have to understand that, remember, they're, they're, in, a, they're in a world that is very hostile to their faith. A world, that, a world that is very hostile to what it is they believe in and what they proclaim and how they live. And they are experiencing dishonor. They are being ridiculed by the people around them. Much like Christians, they are ridiculed for what they believe, either in believing in God or or their senses on sexuality or worship or however it is that that we express the Word of God accurately in in our lives. We can be ridiculed for our faith. And so to them, Peter says, Listen, in the grand scheme of eternity, you will never be put to shame. And so if some of you are feeling that from your family members or for your friend from your friends because of your decision to follow Jesus, may Peter's words encourage you. May Isaiah's words from 750 B.C. encourage you and say that whoever believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. In light of this, Peter says, the honor is for you who believe. Make sure you understand this, that the honor is for you who believe. There is no shame. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In these two verses... Peter quotes Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 14. You need to know that Psalm 118.22 is used multiple times in the New Testament. Anytime we see something repeated... We need to pay attention because apparently it's a big theme. It's a big idea. God is trying to push this idea into the hearts and minds and lives of people because he keeps having his his prophets and his apostles and his messengers proclaim this verse. But not only do his apostles, his prophets, and his messengers claim this verse, but Jesus speaks directly to this verse. Jesus himself draws this scripture from Psalm 118:22 out of out of the Old Testament and into his own life and with it he gives a dire warning to those who don't believe in Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 34 Jesus with a crowd gathers around gathered around him and says here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. Then he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes." Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on him, it will crush him. Now, this might upset your image of Jesus a little bit as as soft, sweet, sweet. Gentle Jesus with feathered hair and product in His hair and walking around in a nice flowing robe being nice to the children saying, all the little children come to me. Oh, I'm so sweet and cuddly and warm. Come here, let me be your homeboy and your best friend. But you need to understand that, that when Jesus speaks here, He speaks as the lion and you have to understand that as the people of God it is so important that we clearly can distinguish Jesus as the lamb and Jesus as the lion for he is both in the way same way that he is fully God and fully man he is fully lamb and he is fully lion and there are times where he takes on the characteristics of the lamb and he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin but to this and from this after his ascension one day he returns he will not return as the lamb He will return as the lion and he will wipe out the enemies of God and he will crush all enemies under his feet. Whether it be people, whether it be Satan, sin and death, Jesus will crush them all. And this is the stone that people stumble. It may be the stone that you are stumbling over. You may find this to be a rock of offense. But whether you stumble over it and whether you are offended by it, it is right and it is true and it is good. And to this end, what Peter says next might cause you great concern and consternation. But in light of this revelation that this rock will crush the enemies of God, Peter says this, the people who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about predestination and free will in churches and in conversations, and it is a stumbling block for many people. You need to know and you need to understand the Bible holds up the doctrine of predestination and election proudly and boldly. It also holds men morally responsible and accountable for all their sins. It is a tension that we must hold because Scripture holds it. Jesus holds it. The apostles uphold it. Throughout the Scripture, you will find these words. But it is not meant to be something to dissuade you. It is not something that is meant to cause you consternation if you are a child of the King. Because if you notice, it is always used when spoken to believers as a sign of security of your salvation. That it is God who has done a marvelous work in your heart and in your life. And it is the most safe, sure, secure footing you could ever put your foot upon. Because it is God who has secured and ordained your salvation. Now to this, I know there are questions that will flood our minds. And we will ask, what about those who never hear? Why does God not elect everyone? The easy answer for me is that I am not God and I do not know. But this is what I know God is holy, God is just, and God is righteous. And that every decision he makes from his sovereign will is in accordance with his holiness, his righteousness. And it's justice. My goal is not to answer every question for you. I know you may have many questions about this. Kevin and I have agreed about 15 minutes after service to answer any of them you might have. But I will leave you with this as you ponder this portion of Scripture. Tom Schreiner, a well-known scholar and follower of Jesus, says this, and I think this is the tension we must hold true in Scripture because this is how I see Scripture presenting it and many others do as well, that those who disbelieve stumble over the stone who is Christ. They stumble over Christ because they refuse to believe in Him and obey Him. People who stumble and disobey are responsible for their refusal to trust in Christ And yet God has appointed without himself being morally responsible for the sin of unbelievers that they will both disobey and stumble. Now, if you want a thought project for the rest of your life, there it is. Because you could never mind the depths, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the wisdom of God. But this accurately portrays what the Bible upholds. And I will say this, no person will ever end up in hell who did not want to be there. And you're going, oh, no, 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 Daniel, now you, no. Listen, one of the hardest things to admit in this life is that we have rebelled against God. That we have chosen to go our own way. That like Paul says in Romans 1, we have worshiped the creation over the creator that we have sinned against God. And the Bible says because of that, we we have put ourselves at enmity with God. We have made ourselves enemies of God. We have all chosen to go our own way and do our own thing. And church, let, let let me say this to you. If you want your walk with Jesus to be set free, you have to embrace this idea. I will tell you the most freeing thing in all the world is to accept the fact that you are a sinner before God and that you did nothing. In yourself, You deserve none of His grace and mercy in your life. Because when you can accept, when you can see the Scriptures as they are proclaimed, and you can accept that there was nothing in you that would find its way to God and turn to God, that it is only by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that He has reached out and snatched you from the fire will it set you free to proclaim His excellency and to worship Him because He did it for you he chose you he selected you he has ordained you to be his own and now in light of that you get to live free you don't have to live up to anything you don't have to prove anything to anybody or anyone you don't even have to prove anything to him all you have to do is respond to his grace and to his mercy and walk in it every day knowing that before the beginning of time the Lord Jesus Christ the Father and the Spirit have sovereignly selected you chosen you predestined You, so that he could pour out his glory, pour out his treasure, pour out his presence upon you for all of eternity. That is what the Lord your God has done for you. Why would you ever fight against that? Why would you kick against those goads? For that is truly the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you were lost in your sin. And Jesus said, come here, you are mine. Peter says, in light, in light of what God has done, recognize this and realize this about your identity. Peter goes, pure Old Testament here, and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has chosen you, God has made you a race into himself. God has made you a royal priesthood. Two ideas that would have blown their mind because they knew that royalty and the priesthood never mixed. The two times royalty tries to enact the priesthood in the Old Testament, it goes really bad for them. One dude gets leprosy. One dude has his kingship removed. You never mix royalty and the priesthood. But you are a royal priesthood. You are sons and daughters of the King. You are the priest. You have direct access to God. You now offer spiritual sacrifices in light of that. You are a holy nation. God has taken you and he has set you apart for a special purpose. If you ever want to, if you ever just want the best word picture I've ever heard for for holiness, it's your toothbrush. Everybody laughs, always laughs at this one. But think about it think about your toothbrush visualize it in your bathroom right now. Isn't it set apart from everything else? Right? It's set apart from everything else. Why? Because you don't want it to get dirty. You don't want it to get stained. Because you know it only has one use and one purpose, right? I I I hope none of you have ever cleaned your toilet with your toothbrush and then stuck it in your mouth. Right? I hope you've never taken a shower with your toothbrush and scrubbed under your arms and then brushed your teeth. Why? And so if you want to know what holiness looks like, it looks like your toothbrush, for you have taken your toothbrush, you have set it apart, and you understand that it has one use and one purpose. So God Peter is saying to them as a holy nation, God has set you apart for his own purpose, for his own use, and now live your life in this way. For you are a people for his own possession. If you remember back in the fall when we were in Ephesians and I preached the, the, ser- the sermon on identity, I said, from our identity flows our movement. You need to know every decision you make in this life flows out of what you think about yourself or what you think others think about you. Every decision you make flows out of who you see yourself to be. Our identity creates our movement. You say, I'm a student, therefore, it means you hopefully go to class, right? You Okay, I'm an employee of this company, so the movement is this. I'm a parent, so I chase that child. I'm not that parent. I don't chase that child, right? All of these things in your identity create the movement in your life. And this is why we have to embrace our identity and what God has done for us, that we are in Christ, that Christ is in us, and it is supposed to create intended movement. And Peter says to us, there are two movements you should see in your life if you are embracing the reality of what God has done for you in Christ. Number one, that you would proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, and number two, that good deeds that result in not yet believers glorifying God on the day of uh, glorifying God on the day that He calls them out of darkness and into light. See, if if you don't find yourself just proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus in your quiet time, in the singing of songs in your car, to your gospel community, to your church friends where where it's easy, but not then, to even to your non-believing friends, then you have not recognized and realized the value and the worth of Jesus Christ and the inheritance that is waiting for you. All it is is the lack of realizing the excellencies of Jesus. Because how can we not proclaim His excellencies in light light of what He has done for us, in rescuing us, in redeeming us, and calling us to be His own? And look, and Peter says it. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Reminds them, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like it's just unfathomable to Peter that we would not proclaim the excellencies of Christ in light of the mercy that we have received. And to this, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, some Virgins are aliens and strangers. To abstain from the passions of the flesh. Because you're that holy nation. You're that toothbrush set aside. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Most likely, if you've been around the church at all, you've heard a phrase... Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. This terrible theology. It gets credited to St. Francis of Assisi. There's no proof he ever said it. So we don't even know where the quote came from. It is true that you should preach the gospel and let your lives be lived in such a way that promote the excellencies of Christ and the gospel. But it takes both. You being a good person in this age of social justice and doing good for, pe- doing good for people is not going to impress anybody who's not a follower of Jesus. It's just not. Yeah, let me just say, I mean, I've, I've been doing this a while. I, I've done every service project under the sun, church-wide. When I planted a church in Seattle, we've done it all. Nobody was ever impressed. Nobody ever cared. Nobody ever came to Jesus just because, of, just because of a few good things that we did. Painting a building. People paint buildings. People volunteer at Boys and Girls Club. But I will say this, but understand. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do those things. We should do those things, but we need to understand that things that we do must be of a greater sacrifice than just what the normal average person living under God's common grace does. Now, you have to understand this because this is what changed the world in the first 300 years after Christ. In 300 years, there went from 120 people in an upper room to a third of the known world becoming followers of Jesus. Oh, now now we're talking, okay, I want some of that. Like, give me some of that. How, How does that work? Well, what happened was when people would take their children who were sick and dying, or the ones they couldn't afford to take of because abortion wasn't available back then, they would take these babies and they would put them under bridges. And Christians became known as the people of the bridge because everywhere babies would be put, the Christians would go and take them and they would adopt them into their home and they would rescue them. In the same way, that image that Paul speaks in Ephesians when he talks about us as the adopted children of God, these, chil- the, these Christians understood that imagery and they would go and they would rescue every baby and they would take him into their home. And so these children grew up in the ways of the Lord and they worshipped the Lord. But in spite of that, all their neighbors thought they were just freaking weird. Why would you go and rescue and redeem and save these babies who aren't yours? Why would you cause hardship on yourself? But see, they did things in such a way that made the world stand up and look and go, this is really weird, this is really normal. Only a supernatural love could cause somebody to do this. There were people dying in homes of sickness and disease and plague and infections that no one could recover from. Everyone would leave the city and the town except the Christians. They would stay they would go and they would minister to those people's needs as they died and they would die with them. They just modeled Jesus by giving up their lives for other people. And the world took notice because they truly sacrificed themselves. Don't think those people were any different from you for they had dreams of what they wanted to be. They had aspirations for their family, for their children, for retirement, for vacation, and all the dreams that human beings have had since God has put us inside of this beautiful creation. But more worthy than all those things, they found Jesus Christ and His excellencies. I will close with this story, and I pray that you respond as I have asked you to, as I have prayed you would this week. There's a group called the Moravians. And we sing many of their hymns. If it's an old hymn with blood in it, the Moravians probably wrote it. Or they were inspired by the Moravians. There was a Moravian named Count Zinzendorf who got so radically impacted by Christ and what he had done for him that five years after his conversion... He started to pray and as he prayed a revival broke out and when this revival broke out through Count Zinzendorf and this Moravian church a prayer meeting went on 24 hours a day seven days a week for the next hundred years Out of this movement of prayer and through the preaching of god's Word, there was a young man named Johann Lober who heard about a group of people, a group of slaves on the island of St. Thomas. So think Jamaica, St. Thomas, all those places we go on vacation, where there were islands of slaves where the Dutch had taken and they would hold their slaves and they would mine their sugar cane. He became so convicted of the need of these slaves to hear the gospel of Christ that at the age of 25 years old, he gave up his career and decided to go and minister among the slaves, even declaring that he was willing to sell himself as a slave to be among the slaves because he wanted them to hear about the excellencies of Jesus Christ. But it is what he said as that boat took off from that shore on that day as he went to give himself to those slaves that has been forever etched into the annals of Christian history. And I pray that it becomes the heart cry of our lives. For as that boat sailed away from the shore, as his friends and his families wept and mourned, thinking they would never see this man again. He raised his arms in the air and he said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Church, is there anything in your heart and your soul that stirs in you this morning that with that man you would desire to proclaim that your life would be lived and that you would say with your mouth and with your life and with your action, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. My hope. And my prayer and my deepest desire for each and every person is that you would set your face toward the cross and that you would proclaim with your words and with your mouth. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. As I invite the band to come back up, as we get ready to enter into communion, may I encourage you And I'm going to have them leave those words on the screen as long as they can. That when you come and you take communion, that when you take it today, that as you hold the body of Christ that is broken and the blood that was shed, that you would say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And with that, may you do this in remembrance of Christ.